Hey everyone, this is Paul Kingsbury. Welcome to the Cutlass Podcast, where we provide fresh perspectives to help you become a more sturdy, versatile, incredible leader and manager. Engage with us online at cutlassleadership.com and like and follow my Facebook page. And send me your questions and topic suggestions to cutlassleadership at gmail.com. Enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Cutlass Podcast. So today I thought we'd switch a little bit more into the management lane. Not that we're not going to talk about leadership in this area. Prior episodes, I've heavily dove into leadership and your ability to influence towards outcomes you want to achieve. But there's a management role to this as well. So day to day in the positions you're in, you're going to find that you're usually planning something, you're organizing resources, you're directing those resources to the achievement of your goals, and then you're controlling or monitoring how those resources are doing their function, uh, and then adjusting as you need to. For those of you in the military, you know it doesn't take long to learn that we are often asked to do more with less, uh, and it takes a lot of time and effort to maintain naval warfighting platforms, and it becomes even more challenging when there's not enough people, not enough resources, and sometimes, most importantly, not enough time. Life in the military means lack of sleep and stress, or traditionally has, And in 2015, a RAND study titled Sleep Deprivation in the Military captures the impacts a lack of sleep has on people in the military, and it does a good comparison against the civilian sector. But does that really mean that military members or those in high-stress, high-demand civilian professions are just victims to this challenge? Is this something we've just got to deal with? So to discuss that with me today and what frontline leaders and others can do to manage fatigue or improve crew endurance is Dr. John Cordell. John served over 30 years as a surface warfare officer in the Naval Nuclear Power Program. Since retiring, he's worked as the director of Maintenance University, was awarded the Doctor of Engineering from Old Dominion University in May of 2019, and currently serves as a human factors engineer. He's an award-winning author who writes extensively about Kirkadian watch rotations and crew endurance, and his articles have been published in a variety of forums such as Proceedings Magazine. He's the recipient of many awards, including the Navy League John Paul Jones Award, the Bureau of Medicine Epictetus Award for Innovative Leadership, and the Proceedings Author of the Year for 2019. So, John, it's a pleasure to have you on the Cutlass Podcast today. Thanks for coming by. How are things going for you? Hey, thanks, Paul. I'm well-rested. I got a cup of coffee. I'm ready to go. Awesome. I love that, well-rested. So, you know, when I thought about this topic, I know you've done a lot of study, you've done a lot of writing, you've done a lot of advocacy on fatigue and building crew endurance, In some professions and jobs, I think being fatigued comes with it, right? It's kind of a chronic part of that job. And these aren't just military professions. They're civilian professions. I think of like intern doctors that work long hours. In other cases, there's situational fatigue, right? More acute instances, perhaps, you know, during warfighting scenarios when you've got to go 48, 72, 96 hours straight without a lot of sleep. So let's start by explaining you know, why leaders at any level from, you know, the team leader all the way up to a strategic or executive leader should care about this topic. And then a little bit about what risks the fatigue introduces into an organization. And then on the other side, what advantages are gained from having a good rested crew? Uh, Something that you uh, said there really queued up something is, uh, you know, professions where you sort of accept the fact that you're going to be fatigued. And then you mentioned some, and what struck me was a lot of those professions are the very ones where you can't afford to be fatigued because a mistake could cost somebody's life or it could cost 
cost you yours. So Absolutely. There's a correlation there, too, kind of that fatigue-stress uh, triangle that you talked about. When I think about fatigue, um, and again, my background, uh, 30 years in the Navy, standing all sorts of watches, um, and then sort of studying it, um, both in an academic sense and an operational sense, uh, what I've kind of learned is there's, there's really three pieces to this puzzle. The first is, as you said, is acute fatigue. I've been up for 24, 36 hours, and my reflexes are, are, are affected. Uh, my ability to think clearly and make good decisions is affected. And there are studies that, uh, that almost directly correlate that as if you had drunk alcohol uh, above the legal limit at about 24 to 36 hours. Okay. Um, different mechanism, but same test results, right? Yep. So pretty quickly, no matter what you've done, you could put yourself in a position where you're actually kind of a danger to yourself and to your team. Okay. In the midterm, and I'm thinking, you know, a six-month deployment, perhaps a long, uh, maybe a pilot on an international with three or four legs, you get chronic fatigue where uh, you have problems with your memory, you might have micro-sleeps, and, uh, and, you know, you can't learn as quickly. So your, your overall performance drops. And of course, if the whole team is that way, uh, you know, the team performance is going to drop. And then really not for this forum, but, you know, more and more, uh, there are studies that show the lifelong effects right. of fatigue, whether it's obesity, diabetes, uh, some studies suggest cancer uh, increases in shift workers. So as a leader, a manager, you also kind of have a responsibility uh, for the folks that work for you for their overall health. So those are three areas, but I think uh, for this talk, probably the focus is on number one and two. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. You know, before we get into what we can do about it, I want to talk a little bit. I think it's always important to get into value and belief systems because I think those underlie our attitudes about whatever topic it is. In this case, we're going to talk about attitudes and beliefs about sleep and crew rotations and things like that. So do you think it just comes down to trying to do too much with too little or are there other reasons that leaders would tend to devalue the importance of managing fatigue in their teams? That's a good question. I think there's a couple of pieces to it. Uh, first of all uh, is, is understanding it. I think a lot of us uh, sort of think we know about sleep and fatigue, but then when you start to study it, you realize how sort of immovable the science is, okay. right? Like uh, we think that we can grab a cup of coffee, we can uh, roll down the window, uh, and uh, and all that stuff helps a little bit, but it might make it worse in the long run. So the first thing I'd say is educate yourself, and there's a lot of stuff out there online. You, you know, there's, a, there's a great National Geographic magazine dedicated to sleep, but there's okay. all sorts of resources out there. The Navy has some good resources, uh, which I can talk about later. Uh, but then understanding how that relates to my team, both in an individual sense and then how the fatigue of, of either one member or the whole team, and, and really it's about the performance, right? So there's a, lots of studies that show a correlation between fatigue and performance. And if you're a manager or a leader, you know, you want to have a high-performing team. And uh, just like you would not, you know, think of a sports analogy, you wouldn't go into a game without eating, without exercising, stretching. You know, you shouldn't go into the game, whether it's a watch or a, uh, an exercise or a battle, when you start out fatigued because it's just going to impact your overall performance. Okay. So I think there's these belief systems out there of toughness or belief that I've got to be present all the time that can underlie this, not in every profession, talk Navy specific. I think it gets back to what you've talked to earlier, this concept of cost of outcome. So in professions where there's a high cost of outcome, when you don't do things right, you kill a lot of people or you cause a sensational event that gets a lot of people's attention. I think you put a lot of risk controls in place and there's a value. One of those risk controls is letting your people get sleep. No. Naval aviators have had the ability to 
crew rest, right? At least eight hours and there's limits on that. In other communities though, like we'll talk surface warfare, for example, and I, I know there's civilian uh, communities as well. I think there's a belief system. Hey, I'm, I got to be tough or if I don't get enough sleep, that's okay. It shows I'm a tough person. What do you, what's been your experience with that? I mean, I've certainly lived that. I think you and I are both uh, nuclear trained, and so they do some bizarre rotations sometimes. Yeah. And uh, and there's definitely a uh, – uh, in the surface warfare community, it has been. I, I think it's changing, but uh, uh, there's still a little bit of the, hey, your worth as a worker or your, your degree of dedication is somehow proportional to how many hours you can work without stopping. And uh, unfortunately, just like with alcohol, you can't really self-measure the decrement of your performance over time right. because your performance is decremented. So um, it's sort of a, you know, it's unfortunate. I think it's getting better. Okay. Um, that recognition that uh, we use the term now protected sleep, like okay. as a leader or a manager, just like I have an eight hour period on watch, um, I need to provide a period of time where that person's priority is to sleep. And that may be, that's kind of the difference now, I think with the circadian watches is that uh, it's the same time every day, which is huge. Uh, but it's also a period of time. Most science will tell you that that's about seven hours, uh, whether it's in one shot or maybe uh, two pieces, but uh, still. Um, and that's where that has to be part of the plan and not an afterthought. And and so, that you know, you talk about the value system, just as much as you value exercise and food, um, sleep has to be right up there. Yeah, I think it comes down to time management too, not just personal time management. There's a component of that, and I want to talk a bit about that later like leader management of your people's time, right? And appreciating that, hey, there's only so much given time and you've got a lot of certain amounts. So the education piece is important because when determining or overcoming a misplaced belief system that you've seen or been taught over a career, you've got to understand the impacts that your decisions are having. I go back to, once again, as a nuke, I still remember this. On you know, my first ship, one of the tools they used to incentivize our qualification was they would put the more senior watch standards, you know, the ones qualified, what we would call senior and rate, would be on a, like a 5 and 45 rotation, right? So five hours on watch, 45 hours off. That's a lot of time off to just focus on, you know, your primary job and other things or to get sleep. But the more junior sailors and watch standards were on 6 and 6. So six hours on watch, six hours off, wow. six hours on watch, six hours off. Just think one of those hours of six hours off watch was usually doing maintenance, getting qualifications for the next thing. So really that last six hours of time, by the time you settled down, tried to get some sleep, and then occasionally drills would be run in the middle of that. I remember just being completely fatigued. And another example, again, nuke power was how they used time, you know, when we were going through school, right? So if, if you did well, they basically assumed like, hey, you have good character and you're competent, so we'll put you on less study hours. And then people that made, you know, have been struggling uh, with the knowledge and the content, I think there was an assumption that you need to have more time, right? So then you'd be up to like Mando 30, Mando 35 hours of study over a week. Um, so this use of time as both a reward and a punishment, leaders have to really think about the impacts that you're causing on your people long-term compared to the short-term results. What What's your experiences there? You brought back some memories there, uh, Paul, but yeah. uh, you know, I, the way I kind of look at it is, uh, you know, time is really the currency of this discussion, yeah. right? I mean, um, you can change a lot of other stuff. Uh, you can actually do some tweaking of the workload. You can tweak the watch rotation. What you can't tweak is the clock. It, it goes at the same pace no matter what. So it's funny because at new school, I remember, like, if I showed up uh, five minutes late to class and they had to wait for me, 
Um, they would multiply those minutes by the people in class, and they would say, "Okay, you just cost you know three hundred man minutes." Yeah. Um, that was that was a currency of nuclear power school. And then I was also I, I had to laugh because I was that guy who had a three point oh one. Um, until I failed the next test or dropped below, and then I went on, stu- on mandatory study uh, until I got a 3.02, and then I got off the mandatory study, so I flip-flopped a lot. And uh, I think the statute of limitations has expired, but uh, there may have been times when I was on those mandatory plus fives uh, that I snuck off and took a nap somewhere during that 12- or 14-hour shift yeah. to make up for it. Yep. Uh, and, and probably was just as effective as if I had worked through those 14 hours. So your body's going to tell you when it's time to shut down and yep. go. And, and if you drive, and you know, the, the more junior you are, the less likely you are to understand that. And so at some level, it's, there's kind of a sweet spot where we all, you know, kind of work about eight to 10 hours a day. And then the rest of it is spent doing other things like sleeping and eating and stuff like that. And if you, if you get, if you can incentivize the watch to get to that level and then keep those senior people on watch, now you've started to build a team. Because the other bad side effect of that incentivized program is you never stand watch with the same people because you're always shifting people in and out. Yes. And what I like about the circadian, what I saw on my tour on San Jacinto was Without really thinking about it, you formed coherent watch teams that stood the same watch together every day. And some of them even developed personas, like a, like they would call themselves after a football team. And there would be competition between the, the three to, you know, the people that normally stood the three to six watch and the people that stood the nine to 12. Um, they would work out together. They would, they would start to build almost a team persona yeah. around the watch team, which was a secondary effect that was pretty positive. So we know there's a challenge here, a problem. It's got negative impacts on team, but if managed well, it can actually actually help achieve mission readiness and shape attitudes. So what are some of the points of advice you have to offer on ways managers can manage team and personnel fatigue, You know, things you've seen out there, tactics people can use, what they can do with their personal planning or management skills? What do you have to offer the audience on that? You know, the first thought is, like everything in life, it's all about priorities. And uh, when I am on a, uh, a warship underway, for example, at the end of the day, if you, if you, if you made a list of things that must happen, uh, it's really stand a good watch, right? And then everything below that kind of supports that. It's different now, but then there, were, there was a long time there, and, and probably to some extent still, where, uh, you know, what really drove the day was, uh, a messing and birthing inspection or a meal time or this meeting or this brief. And it, that was deemed to be the higher priority than my sleep. And, uh, and so now the mindset kind of is, Hey, the first, the most important thing you do is stand your watch. Probably the second most important thing you do is eat. Uh, and after that sleep so okay. that you can stand your watch. Now you have to do work too. Um, but that can be a piece of that puzzle. Um, and that's really, if you look at the, the naval allowance factor, the standard workday, that's what that thing is built on. Okay. And it doesn't care what eight hours a day you spend sleeping, whether it's from midnight to 8 a.m., noon to 8 p.m., you know, and that's where I think the aviation community, you know, they time their workday around the flight schedule or the maintenance schedule, which means they may be sleeping during the day and working at night. And so, uh, so you have to sort of get out of that quote, workday mentality and say, what is the focus of my day? And if it's from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., then when am I going to sleep to be prepared for that? The Cutlass Podcast will return in a moment. For more than 100 years, naval professionals have counted on books such as the Chief Petty Officer's Guide to prepare them for the responsibilities as they advance in their careers and to serve as a ready reference and refresher when needed. 
The Chief Petty Officer's Guide provides unique insights into topics such as the one discussed in this podcast, which enable Navy chiefs and other leaders to achieve their objectives and positively influence their sailors, peers, and leadership. The Chief Petty Officer's Guide is essential and insightful reading for chiefs of any experience level, first-class petty officers who aspire to advance to chief, or anyone looking to reflect on the state of their leadership and management skills while benefiting from insights on the leadership and management approaches of U.S. Navy chiefs. Get your copy today at www.usni.org backslash books or online at your bookstore of choice. Now back to the Cutlass Podcast. So what have you seen with crew rotations? I know you did some work on this um, and did some writing on this too. Uh, you know, recommendations on crew rotations or watch rotations. If you go to the um, Naval Postgraduate School uh, website uh, on crew endurance, they have a, a whole – uh, basically a menu of watch bills that have different, uh, depending on how many sections you're in. So three section, four section, five section. And, uh, what they have in common is you stand the same watch the same time every day. So a circadian 24 hour clock. Okay. Um, the, uh, in general, just like in driving your car, the best watch is the shorter watch. So a three hour watch is better than a five hour watch, but then you have to have more sections to support that. So it's a trade off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if you're in a, if you're in a place like the nukes where you have to do drills and training, you know, you might not be able to do a three hour watch. You might have to do a five or a six hour in order to make the time. Uh, so it's a, there's, a, there's going to be trade offs, but again, back to your point, it's about priorities and about management. And it's about the long term. Now, there is some science about rotating. At some point, I get tired of standing the same watch every day. And I want to stand a different one. Mm -hmm. um, and there's science, just like if you jet lag from flying east to west versus west to east, there's science that says if you tweak the watch in one-hour increments over, say, a Saturday night, add one hour to each watch, then suddenly I wake up and I'm, I'm three hours off. It's not like I uh, did it in one shot. There's ways to, to manage that. Um, and uh, and minimize the impact of those transitions because the transition times are when the, the impacts are really uh, exacerbated. Okay, Does that makes sense. Yeah, and this is where you got to um, break through. People got to evaluate their belief systems, right? Is it you know like you've mentioned? There's a resource out there that gives you some. Hey, here's how you can do this. To what extent do people let their? Well, that's not how I did it, or it's too hard, quote unquote, get in the way of trying something new that in the long run could be better for their teams and their organization. That's right. And just like everything else, um, you have to think through the whole thing. So some of the things I've seen come up are meal hours. Okay. Well, if I have this watch team in three section, this one in four section, their turnover time is different or their, you know, the time that I need to feed the meal is different. That could be a, you know, a showstopper. Unless you say, okay, well, wait a minute, the people cooking the meals have a circadian rhythm too. Yeah. Let's put them in some sort of a rotation so that if I'm cooking breakfast at five in the morning, I'm not cooking, you know, the mid rats at, at, uh, at midnight. Um, and so break up the team there. Look at the admin support. Look at uh, supply, whether I have to go get materials or go get parts. Consider that somebody might have a work day that goes from midnight to 6 a.m. I need to have somebody up and supporting them. You know, Suddenly your whole organization is now queued around the watch bill, which is why the ship is out there in the first place. But I see a lot of resistance in some of these, you know, more of the support roles to think about it in that operational sense that uh, – that it's not just open up with, you know, after breakfast and, and shut down after lunch. It's uh, it's when are the people working? When do they need that support? So it kind of permeates the whole command. Yeah. How about some of the environmental things like advice on how to establish some good sleep conditions, announcements? What are these kind of things that managers or leaders could do to help? 
Well, that's a great question because, you know, you, I can give you time to sleep, but there's really two parts to it. The first is um, you give me the time to sleep, but do you give me a good environment to sleep in? Um, and do I take it upon myself to actually sleep? Yes. Right? Um, and so those are two very separate discussions. On the on the sleep side, unfortunately, you know, whereas I at home I have a, you know, a $500 mattress and I have all the lights out on the ship, it's not necessarily that way. Yep. Uh, I think, you know, just the basics of, you know, when I did messing and birthing, I, I always used to check on cleanliness, but I wasn't necessarily checking to make sure the mattresses are still uh, in good shape. And, uh, you know, I think there's some moves to, to improve mattress quality, rack curtains. They've actually come out some, uh, you can get the kind of a sleep kit that's got, you know, earplugs and a, and a blindfold. Uh, so light plays a role, noise plays a role. Yeah. Just the idea that, hey, it's not just discourteous to be loud uh, in a birthing compartment. It's also you're interrupting somebody's sleep who needs it. There's to rearrange where people sleep so that they're getting up at the same time. You know, yep. uh, I remember sleeping in a nine-person bunk room where one knucklehead had an alarm clock that went off and woke all nine of us up so he could make his watch. We kept throwing it over the side and he'd buy <laughs> another one. But that matters, right? And so preserving both the time and the environment, whether it's light, noise, ventilation, if I had to do over again, my messing and birthing would have been much more about uh, the quality of the environment for sleep and not just whether there was dust under the rack or whether the corners were, were tight. Yep. And I noticed even, like I said, even in the civilian sector, the last long haul flight I really did, even the flight attendants, the back of the airplane had basically a little rack system set up with curtains. Uh -huh. I had never seen that before, right? So during their time off, because they've got that downtime too on those long, you know, 12, 14, 15 hour flights. Oh, yeah. So it's not just the military that can uh, benefit from that. Even the pilots, I think, have to trade off sometimes. Yes. And, uh, there used to be a policy. They both had to be awake all the time. But as I understand it, there's some on those long hauls where uh, one of them is supposed to take some time, take a break. You yeah. know, whether they can sleep or not, I don't know. But uh, um, it's all about being alert when you have to be. Okay. Because, um, you know, back to your point real quick on the very beginning is uh, whenever you do have that emergency, you know, you start with the gas that's in your tank. Yeah. And so if I have to... If I'm a firefighter, if I'm a, uh, if I have to put the rescue boat in the water, if I have to launch the plane on a moment's notice, wherever I start, that's where my, that's where I degrade from. And yeah. so if I've built up that toughness and that resiliency with a circadian watch, then I just am better off. And that's, you know, so to make one more point on the planning part is uh, on the one hand, I don't know when those events are going to happen. If I do, I can plan for them and, and think ahead and say, okay, Johnny has the, you know, has to do flight quarters at six in the morning, but he's got the morning watch. Let's swap him out. That's a possibility. Yeah. Or take into account that after he does all that, he's going to be wiped out. So let's don't give him that maintenance check. Let's put him down for four hours. Same way it applies to the captain or the XO or the department head or the master chief. Yeah. You know, I want you to be awake and alert when you're on the bridge, not asleep on your feet because you've been standing up for 12 hours, yeah. right? And that's on the leader, right? Or the manager, right? To Part of this is the the ability to push back and say no, right? So you can defer maintenance checks. You know what I mean? You have the flexibility, but am I being creative enough and willing enough to be flexible? I think that's important for them to think about. When you talk about the work and the priorities, you know, we, we always talk about what's my number one, two, three, four priority. What we don't really acknowledge is that there's stuff that's not going to get done. Yeah. And, uh, and the difference is, do I make that decision as the manager or do I leave it up to chance and let each person decide? Uh, and that's where if you get into, you know, whether it's a planned maintenance check or a, or a training event, 
if they don't have time to do it, they're not going to do it. Nope. And uh, and then, or they create a, you get a false sense of urgency, and then you get somebody hurt or damaged yes. because they tried to jam too much into too little time. So, or they cut corners. That's a management decision. Is and if I can't do it, do I tell my boss that I can't do right. it? Right. And and why? All right. Let's get to the personal responsibility because I agree with that too. Hey, once you're given this time, you got to treat it as something important. So you got to protect it. You got to value it. So because you have that time, that doesn't mean, okay, go spend half of it playing video games or, you know, doing something else, staying up late. And I'm not saying never do that. And part of this is leave or in the civilian sector, pay time off management, right? So what are your thoughts on that? So on on the daily routine side, um, and again, it goes back to education and that value system that, uh, that A, you have to make sure the member understands that, that his sleep is important to me as the manager, but also that it's important to him or her for their own health and for their proficiency and their ability to do their job. And so there's an education piece to that too, but then also an expectation management piece. You know, you're not going to tell a 20-year-old, 19-year-old that you can't play video games. You just have to make sure they understand, A, that there's a time and a place for that, and B, that they're going to be held accountable personally if they uh, if they tend to squander that time on, uh, on doing something besides sleep. Yeah. Um, I always felt like one of my jobs as a manager and a leader was to just remove barriers, not necessarily to to help people get where they were going, but to remove the barriers that prevented them from getting there. And that could be something as simple as the TV is on all the time, or nobody turns out the lights, or somebody's playing a loud video game in the rack above me, you know, instead of putting headphones on. So little stuff like that. Yeah, this is the world you operate in, right? So I call it, you know, in my model ecological power, right? Using your ecological power to shape the environment in the best interest of your people. This is your world of human factors engineering. But like leave, a lot of people bank that and they just use it. But if you, you know, I learned frankly too late. I'm like, hey, a cool tactic here is if, you know, we know in the military, at least you accrue two and a half days a month. So I got it. Initially, you're probably going to save some leave and things like that till you build it up. But if you took five days in the middle of two weekends, right? And as long as you stay in a local area, That's nine days off. And over that quarter, if you did that once a quarter, you would still accrue 2.5 days over that quarter and still develop a positive balance. But you would be factoring and using that as a tool to help manage fatigue and build endurance. No, absolutely. And that's where I think, you know, it's funny as a a 30-year person in the military, um, go ask somebody, you know, how much leave have you taken over your career? Oh, I hardly took any. Well, you've probably taken about three years. Yeah. Um, because you take one thirty days per year, one out of twelve, and most people they they do build it up, but they build up you know sixty or ninety days and they sell some back. No, I think uh, in my I always looked at leave like uh, it's it's pay, right? I mean it's just another form of of uh, currency, and so uh, to give it up is just crazy, and it's not it's just as stupid as uh, as giving up sleep. Um, but by the same token, uh, there's lots of science that says that you're you know you need time for your for your uh, mind and body to reset. And so, you know, back to the laws of the Navy, take leave for the good of the service, right? It's not for you. uh, It's for the team. And then plan that out. And so, uh, especially, you know, in today's sort of this COVID environment, uh, when the ship's, you know, when the ship's underway, you can't take leave and then not everybody can take it at the same time. So it really has to be Every ship I was ever on, except one, um, had very coherent leave periods, right? Like, you know, the two weeks prior to Christmas or the two weeks over New Year's and, you know, leave period A, leave period B, and there was a big turnover. My reactor officer on the Truman said, we're not doing that. Here's the rules. The period is from, from 15 December to 15 January, 
and you can have 40% or 30% or whatever of the crew on leave at any given time. So figure it out. Yeah. And so we had no, we had no turnovers. We had no, it was just, there was a steady state. Um, and it was a much smoother holiday period than I ever saw on any other command. Yeah. I think that's a great point because, you know, we talk about innovation a lot and you, I think people think you can just get people together and think your way into innovation. But I think innovation is driven creating uh, resource constraints with a constant demand signal. So that's what that reactor officer did. I'm going to constrain the problem. I'm going to give you boundaries and then you have to figure out new ways to approach it. So I'd encourage any kind of executive or strategic level leader to think about that. And that's your role is, hey, where can you put constraints into the current thinking model that causes people to have to create something new in the better interest of the right. people. Um, or even better, why not capture what somebody else has learned and not spend all the time reinventing the same thing over and over again? Yes. You know, I think, uh, again, what, kind of in, in along that vein, I always felt like on overseas uh, port calls, not that that's a, even a relevant point anymore for now, you know, I felt bad that the crew comes stumbling in at, you know, 5 o'clock in the morning to do duty section turnover and uh, maybe had a little too much to drink or didn't sleep, and now they're taking the watch. Um, so the master chief said, why don't we move turnover to 11 a.m. and just do a 24-hour day, but the, the oncoming section doesn't have to be back to the ship until 10. And and what did that do? They came back well-rested. They got the breakfast in their hotel, uh, and, and, you know, we had much less issues. And yep. so pretty simple solution, uh, but where do you go to – what did it take to figure that out? It took one chief who kind of was thinking outside the box. Yeah. And then uh, taking that learning and then codify it in policy. If you know it has good benefits, you know, maybe that's the point where you codify the policy and go, hey, you know, we're putting the guardrails in place because we don't want to take the risk that the lower level decision makers are going to go and continue to do things not in the most effective and efficient way, which are frankly the outcomes you're looking for as a manager. That's right. And that's where I think, you know, I have to give uh, credit to the, the Navy and the surface Navy for uh, the way they have – uh, taking the approach of codifying it both in, uh, in instructions, uh, whether it's crew rest, uh, for the aviators, the crew endurance, uh, for the surface folks, um, putting all that information on the website, uh, for the postgraduate school. Yep. Um, you know, there's, there's the safety center has some good resources. There's fatigue management. I've got a little handout that they do, okay. uh, give out. And so, you know, the, the resources are there, but again, um, I'm sitting there looking at my at my bookshelf, and I have managing for dummies, statistics for dummies, <laughs> calculus for dummies, but I haven't read them in a long time. You know, so you have to make it a priority to educate yourself, train yourself, and reach out and look for those uh, resources. But they're there. Okay. And in addition to that, you know, I would always encourage my listeners: Hey, you can just Google managing sleep fatigue, and I'm sure there's YouTube videos, there's TED talks, there's a whole bunch of stuff they can use. So. All right, John, any last no, thoughts or advice on this topic you want to close out with? Sure, just the one. Uh, and again, I think I said this in the beginning, but you know, I'm not speaking here on behalf of the government. This is my thoughts yes. as a manager and a leader. But uh, it really boils down to what's your priority and uh, and making this, you know, I think where, where sometimes we, we think there's a trade-off between sleep and warfighting or between sleep and, and, and elite performance or operational performance. And I would submit that it's the exact opposite. That you really, if you ignore sleep, you are really setting yourself up for uh, uh, for bad performance. Whether it's just poor performance in, a, in an exercise, uh, or somebody getting tired and, and hurting someone or hurting themselves. Um, there's also ties to stress. 
um, destructive behavior, you know, this, this stuff is all related. And so that's why, you know, you can find articles, uh, a couple that, that I've published that, uh, that I think we're starting to get there, that crew endurance is a, it's an operational imperative, right? I mean, it's part of the warfighting ethos. The SEALs know this. Uh, you know, I think we're all starting to realize that. So that would be my takeaway is, is it's not either or. It's, uh, it, it's both. Fatigue management, crew endurance, and operational performance are all sort of tied together. All right. My guest today has been Dr. John Coral. Thanks again, John, for your insights, the conversation today. And then thanks, most importantly, for your advocacy on behalf of all our naval professionals in the fleet. No, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity to share. All right. For the audience, a few questions I wrote down for you to reflect on in this area. So the first one, what's your current attitude towards fatigue and endurance management? Is it something to live with or do you look at it as something that you can actively manage to make things better for your teams? And then the second question what things could or should you be doing to manage the time your people are spending to minimize fatigue and increase endurance? Thanks again for listening to the Cutlass Podcast. If you want to learn more about the topic we've discussed today or any other episodes, you can check out the Chief Petty Officer's Guide or any of the resources listed in the episode description. Take time now to subscribe to the Cutlass Podcast. To provide me feedback or suggest topics for future episodes, email me at cutlassleadership at gmail.com. I'm Paul Kingsbury. Work hard to keep your leadership cutlass sharp. And work to be a sturdy, versatile, and credible leader who makes a positive difference in your professional and personal life.